coming up this evening on NTD Business. Europe's largest nuclear power plant is now in Russia's hands. What's on the line? U.S. gas prices spiking. AAA saying the national average is the highest it's been in nearly a decade. America's economy is adding more jobs than expected in February, but there's still more to go. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. Russia now has control of Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Anthony's fake quarter has what happened there as well as what Putin may want. Footage shows the Zaporozhye nuclear plant, Europe's largest, bombarded with shells, causing a fire. Firefighters extinguished the flames Friday morning. There are no casualties or victims among the unarmed civilian population. The mayor of the city the plant is in told civilians not to provoke Russian soldiers. And the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency says no radioactive material was released. The six reactors at the plant were not affected at all. It's never a good idea to have live fire around a nuclear power plant, but there are numerous outbuildings, uh, utility buildings, etc. The actual dangerous part of the nuclear plant, the core reactor, is normally behind uh, over 20 feet thickness of rebar, cement, uh, concrete, etc. Um, so, you know, your average bullet is not going to, uh, or, or even RPG, is not going to necessarily endanger uh, nuclear fallout. Energy expert Daniel Turner wasn't concerned about a meltdown, like what happened with Chernobyl in the 1980s. The International Energy Agency says nuclear power generated 54 percent of Ukraine's energy in 2020, with coal and natural gas taking second and third place. But Ukraine has a lot of natural gas near Crimea, which may have been one reason for the invasion. Ukraine did not want to have any relationship with Putin or his energy uh, uh, infrastructure desires. It's um, so conquering Ukraine um, does open him up to a lot of oil and gas uh, uh, reserves, a lot of them untapped reserves. Energy expert Ari Van Berkel is concerned Russia may turn off Ukraine's power. The main thing to watch is the transmission grid, and that is relatively easy to interrupt, uh, either intentionally or as a collateral damage. And that, of course, is the main risk to the Ukrainian population right now. The transmission grid carries power to buildings in Ukraine. Russian troops have taken over the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, and the Ukrainian staff continue to operate it. Both sides say the troops aren't interfering with the staff. Fake order, NTD News. And back in the States, lawmakers in New Jersey's largest city are targeting local gas stations because they're branded with the name of a major Russian oil company. The Newark City Council passed a resolution Wednesday urging the city to suspend all licenses of two local Luke Oil gas stations to show support for Ukraine. It comes as a flood of Western businesses cut ties with Russian entities while Washington imposes various sanctions. Several Russian tycoons have had their assets seized or frozen by Western nations. But it is the case that Luke Oil's billionaire founder has called for an end to hostilities in Ukraine. 
But it comes at a time when gas at the pump has, hasn't been this expensive in nearly 10 years. The national average price for a regular gallon of gas climbed to $3.84 today. AAA says that's the highest since September 2012. And it's rising at a pace we haven't seen since Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Prices are expected to continue to soar as the war in Ukraine continues. Nine states are already paying more than $4 a gallon. The national average is expected to get there soon, too. So joining us now live from Houston, Texas, is energy veteran Tom McNulty, president of T.J. McNulty & Company. He's also a former officer with the State Department stationed in the former Soviet Union. Tom, great to see you as always. Thanks for coming on. Always good to see you, Rob. Tom, the price of gas is rising, but there's still talk of banning Russian oil imports. Does that mean more pain at the pump for Americans? Yeah, I think fuel prices will continue to rise. Uh, and it's, it, it's actually going to become very challenging, I think, in the food chain, too. This hasn't been talked about quite as much, but uh, will, uh, food prices are going to be, start to become a problem because of the transportation costs and also fertilizer costs. Um, I do think that Americans don't always realize we do export a lot of fuel. When we import crude, it's because of our refinery complex, and we turn it into gasoline, diesel, aviation fuel petroleum products and then send it back overseas. There may start to be some political pressure to work on that and maybe retain more of the petroleum products in the United States uh, in the weeks and months ahead. So can you explain that to us, Tom? Why exactly when the U.S. has so much oil in the ground, why do we import from Russia at all? We, we import, our primary import um, source is Canada. We also import from Saudi Arabia. The Russian number has been about 590,000 barrels a day, as, as you know. It, it is because of the refinery complex. The United States is one of the largest in the world, so we bring oil in to turn it into petroleum products, like, like I said earlier, fuels, and then export them back overseas and retain uh, some of the fuels here. So. It's kind of a complex market. There are also different grades of oil, and refineries are configured to handle different types of oil, heavier and lighter oils. And for many years, our own complex has largely been configured for a variety of heavier foreign oils. It's kind of a long, complex story, but as, as U.S. production has increased, a lot of our lighter, you know, West Texas intermediate type lighter crudes the refineries can refigure and change. It just takes time, and, and we certainly re refine our own oil also. So if we cut the imports from Russia, are we going to get it from American soil, or are we going to have to buy it from another foreign source? You know, my when I was thinking about it, the, about 590,000 barrels a day, I think that the barrels can be replaced, and the people, you know, I know I have friends who do this, who are in the refineries, who, who, whose job is it to, to source the crude so they can turn it into product. They'll find the barrels, might have to pay more, which then transfers, transfers downstream into higher prices. I think we could, we'll probably import more from Canada and find other sources. Some of it can come from some of the basins in the United States as well. It's not a gigantic number, in my opinion, that you know, would be incredibly difficult to replace. It can be done. Last time you were on the show, Tom, you predicted prices falling by the end of the year. We didn't expect this war. You have a new prediction for us? Well, I think, you know, actually, if, if, if there's a resolution 
fairly quickly, you know, I would stick by my original forecast because a lot of production is coming online. American production is increasing. I don't think that's widely been disseminated. And we've had 200 completions again in January, about and after 200 well completions in December. So production is coming up. There are barrels that are going to come onto the market. You know, OPEC has held off, but I suspect they'll start to produce more, you know, maybe over the summer. And then Iranian barrels may start to show up given the negotiations. So, I mean, if the war continues and drags on and, and, and stays in a quagmire uh, type of mode, then my prediction probably will, will, will be wrong. But I mean, if, if it's resolved somehow, I think prices will drop actually probably pretty quickly. I've got about 30 seconds, Tom, but I want to ask you as an interesting piece of news a day or two ago, I wanted to get your thoughts. So the Biden administration, someone in the, the White House and advisors said that, you know, American producers should go ahead and produce if they want to. We're not going to stop them. Seems like a little bit of change in a sentiment. Do you think this affects American producers at all? Does it encourage them? You know, it, it is kind of interesting. The pr production's increasing and, and the independents are producing more. The big guys are producing more. So that that is already happening. The question is velocity. It's probably not happening as fast as, you know, I'd like to see us aim for 15 million barrels a day. And that sounds like a big number. It's doable. We need to cross 100 BCF a day of gas. There are pipeline issues, though, and LNG issues for the export of gas. I mean, we've had a lot of pipelines blocked, delayed. The LNG process takes a while so we can produce gas and oil but then it has to go to market. And some of the infrastructure has been delayed with regulatory and court type issues. But I, 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 producers are producing more. It's a question of what, you know, maybe they need to do it faster. Uh -huh. Tom McNulty down there, Houston, Texas. Appreciate it as always. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Have a good night. Thanks. Chinese bonds. Could they be a financial lifeline for Russia as it copes with Western sanctions? Countries like the U.S. have frozen Russia's overseas assets. China has not. According to one research group, Russia's central bank and sovereign wealth fund could own over 20% of Chinese bonds held overseas. That'd be worth $140 billion. Here's NTD's Olin Richards with more. That 20% figure comes from ANZ, a research team focused on regional and global economies. It gives analysis and forecasts for economic trends. Russia's financial markets have been thrown into turmoil by Western sanctions. So Russian companies have been exploring possible ways to cope, and China is one of them. Because of that, international transactions fulfilled in Chinese yuan are on the rise. That's instead of using the U.S. dollar, the standard currency for most foreign trade deals. According to an ANZ note this week, Russia's yuan bond holdings have topped an estimated $80 billion in the country's central bank and another $60 billion in the Russian National Wealth Fund. What's more, the yen accounted for over 13% of the Russian central bank's foreign currency reserves last June, just 3% less than its U.S. dollar reserves. Despite those numbers, ANZ said the current crisis is unlikely to significantly boost global use of the yuan, though it did note that Russia may try to use China's cross-border interbank payment system, or SIPS. That's to counter its ban from the more prevalent SWIFT system a secure international message network that banks use to send transaction information. They explained that SIPS is not a replacement for SWIFT, saying, SIPS is mainly an RMB clearing system, and more than 80% of transactions on SIPS rely on SWIFT Telegram. The RMB, or renminbi, refers to the Chinese yuan. A U.S. State Department official says that if China does indeed help Russia evade sanctions, 
the U.S. will take countermeasures. But how much help can China actually provide to Russia given the international condemnation that Russia is facing? Don Ma has more. We speak with experts to find out how much help China can give to Russia as it contends with Western sanctions. Economist Milton Isradi says that in terms of financial sanctions, China can help very little. I mean, the, the West has already frozen two-thirds of the uh, reserves of the uh, Russian Central Bank. It has sanctioned in large ways 80 percent of Russia's banking assets, effectively, outside of Russia. China can do very little to help with that. What about in energy? Israeli sees some obstacles China would face in this sector as well. China is importing um, about uh, less than a third of the total exports of both oil and natural gas that Russia sells mostly to Europe. They would have to triple their, their purchases of Russian oil and natural gas. They probably will re be reluctant to do that. And in terms of agricultural products, China has lifted all restrictions on wheat imports from Russia. But Israeli says China is unable to buy all of Russia's wheat exports. No, I don't think they can, they can take all the Russian wheat. And Russia has other, so other ways to, to, uh, to sell their wheat than China. From 2020 to 2021, Russia exported over 40 million tons of wheat globally. But China's annual quota of wheat imports is about one-fourth that amount, just over 10 million tons. But stepping back a little, another expert tells us Beijing may not have intended to help Moscow in the first place. So I think China's in a difficult position here. And from an economic standpoint, um, I don't believe they, they really want to go overboard in helping Russia in a situation like this, because doing so helps them uh, isolate themselves from the rest of the world. And they would be opposing everything that the Western nations are doing. Economist Robert Janeski says that if China helps Russia to any great extent, Beijing will face increasing difficulty maintaining relations with much of the rest of the world. Don Ma, NTD News. Reuters reports that some Russians may be turning to cryptocurrency amid a falling Russian ruble. But that means sanctioned people or firms could be included, potentially weakening the West's efforts to punish them. That's led to calls for a freeze on all Russian crypto assets. But today, two of the world's biggest e-coin exchanges rejected that idea. Coinbase and Binance say they won't put a blanket freeze on Russian accounts. Coinbase CEO says everyone deserves access to financial services, but he said the firm would enforce a blanket ban if Washington imposed one. Wall Street ended lower today, did fare better than its European markets. France, Germany and the UK all down over 3.5%. Europe is likely more vulnerable to the conflict than the United States. In U.S. markets, the Dow fell 180 points, but half a percent. The S&P 500 lost 35 points, eight-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq lost 225 points, one and seven-tenths of a percent. But the U.S. economy added 678,000 jobs in February, the best month for job growth since July. The unemployment rate, too, dropping down to 3.8 percent, a new pandemic-era low. Labor Department says most of the new jobs were at bars and restaurants, but we still need to add 2.1 million more jobs before we hit that February 2020 level and recoup all positions lost in the pandemic. 
So it's that time of the month again, and we're joined by the District President for Global Talent Solutions and business consulting firm Robert Half, Billy Malier. Billy, great to see you. Great to see you as well. Can you believe, Billy, it's this time of year again? That was a fast month, right? That was a really fast month. No, I can't believe it, but yes, I can believe it, actually. Not happening. Billy, I want to get, I think there's no arguing it was a strong jobs report. Actually, to begin with, I want to actually go to a Robert Half report and something that I think is very relevant for this strong uh, report. Businesses are really becoming flexible in order to hire people. This particular statistic stood out to me in, in your recent survey and report that 31% of businesses, almost a third of businesses you surveyed, are loosening education, skills, or experience requirements. Does this surprise you? Have you ever seen something like this before? Well, I can tell you, I've been in the business for 15 years, specifically with Robert Half Talent Solutions. And this is among the most robust hiring markets we've seen. It's very talent tight. Um, and I'm sure you're hearing a lot of that. And so, no, not necessarily right. Had I seen that much what we call internally stretching of the market, but it's definitely a strategy being utilized so that employers can attract and um, identify and secure top talent today. I think there's two sides of the coin. I think it's a great opportunity for people who are looking to try something new or, or upskill, whatever, but you also have the businesses. How do they feel, both sides of the, the coin? How are they feeling? Well, I think for job seekers, they, they feel like they have some leverage. You know, a number of job seekers and with in-demand skill sets, you will find, and it's not atypical for us to see that they're receiving multiple offers, three plus. I think hiring managers are having to utilize strategies now that they probably didn't in the past. One, to your point, it's stretching skill sets, even educational requirements to make the match. The others are, you know, would include increasing salaries, offering other incentives. The others, I'm sure you've heard a lot about this, remote, even, you know, local distance or distance, distance geography uh, allowances for employees to you know, attract them to their uh, workplaces. So there's a lot that's happening today that maybe we hadn't seen in the past to attract top talent. There seemed to be, at least in the data, more people entering the workforce that may not have been there during the, the, the course of the pandemic. Are we seeing more people come into the workforce? And if so, where are they coming from? You know, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, we're continuing to obviously navigate recovery. And so there are employees who maybe hadn't been working who are returning to work but there's also something i'm sure you've heard this uh, somewhat of a great reshift great resignation so they're shifting of employees from one job to another and so i think you're seeing kind of the convergence of both of those take place now we're still seeing it as well. I'm sure the employers were hoping maybe we'd seen the, the back of it as we've gone through 2022. Billy Malia, Robert Half, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to hail a self-driving car in California. Sounds futuristic, right? Well, the future is here. California just issued permits to cruise in Waymo that allow passengers to hitch a ride in autonomous vehicles. For now, a human safety operator must be present just in case. But the permits do authorize crews in Waymo to collect fares from riders. That wasn't allowed in the past. 
Cruise is a self-driving unit of General Motors. Waymo belongs to Google parent Alphabet. And staying on cars, Sony and Honda are joining forces to develop electric vehicles. They announced the news today saying they aim to sell the first model in 2025. Honda's in charge of manufacturing the first model. Sony will develop the mobility service platform. Of course, Sony doesn't have the dominance over consumer electronics like it used to think Samsung these days. But it still has sophisticated technology in areas like sensors, which are critical to self-driving. The auto industry is seeing a rapid shift to EVs that creates opportunities for tech companies to be in on the action, since the vehicles are easier to manufacture than cars with internal combustion engines. But at the same time, tech companies face challenges to meet safety regulations and making cars that can handle difficult driving conditions. Quick break, but still to come. Stay with us. Disney Plus adding a new subscription option later this year. It hopes a cheaper tier will boost subscriber growth. New devices unveiled at Mobile World Congress. We take a look at Samsung's new laptops and Nokia's new smartphones. That and more coming up on NTD Business. back. If you're looking to get Disney Plus for the family but hoping to save some cash, an ad-supported tier is in the works. It'll be one of the subscription options later this year, but an exact date or what the price and package will look like are yet to be announced. Disney said it sees the ad tier as a building block in the company's goal of reaching at least 230 million long-term subscribers over the next two years. Disney Plus had about 130 million as of January. And Samsung showed off two new PC laptops this week at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. The owner of Nokia's mobile brand has announced three new additions to its affordable C-series of smartphones. Anthony's Andrew Thomas has more. Samsung's Galaxy Book 2 Pro comes with a 13.3-inch or 15.6-inch screen, 5G connectivity, and promises up to 21 hours of battery life. It's powered by 12th gen Intel Core processors and runs Windows 11. And it's also been upgraded for video calls, including a 1080p FHD webcam, wider field of view angles, and AI noise canceling. Several different laptops, and the reason we are bringing them out is because we did some research, and we now see that a lot of people are saying that their employers are not giving them the tech equipment to continue to do remote working. As many companies are going back three days a week to the office, in two days you can remote work and so we want to empower people to work from home. HMD Global, the owner of Nokia's mobile brand, announced three new additions to its C-series of affordable smartphones. The C21 Pro comes with a 6.5-inch HD Plus display, 8-megapixel camera, and a promise of all-day battery life. We started the C-Range two years ago with our very first model. Now we have five devices. This year at MWC, we've renewed three of these devices. Very important. And another very interesting trend in that segment is that consumers 
also get financing offers to, again, help them with the affordability. The four-day Mobile World Congress ended Thursday. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's the latest business updates for this week. Can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox this evening, 6.30 p.m. Eastern. For NTD Business, it's all for this week. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.